Do you believe in ghosts? Are you hearing strange noises at night? Scratches and whispers coming from the walls. Heavy footsteps in the attic. Doors slamming on their own. What if you woke up one morning to find everything on your bathroom counter moved around? Or you walked into the kitchen to see a cabinet open when you know you closed it the night before. If you're not a believer in the supernatural, you'd probably think you were going nuts. But what if your mind wasn't playing tricks on you? What if it was all real? Well, then there's only one horrifying explanation. Someone has been in the house. As far-fetched as it sounds, it happens. In the late 80s, it ended with the brutal murder of a nursery school teacher and her two young children. And that is where the twisted story of Daniel LaPlante begins. Hey, I'm Amy, and you found True Crime Recaps. By the time he was 16, Daniel LaPlante already had a reputation as a troublemaker. He was built differently. So different, in fact, that his crimes became something of an urban legend in the town of Pepperell, Massachusetts. But the truth isn't always stranger than fiction. Sometimes you end up with a tie. Frank Bowen's two daughters were the first to start telling strange stories. The girls were still grieving the recent death of their mother when they started seeing things. The TV would change channels by itself. They'd leave a freshly poured glass of milk on the table only to find it empty when they returned from the bathroom. Then they started hearing things too. Strange knocking sounds came out of nowhere. Scratching noises in rooms where no one was. Pennies carefully placed next to each other on the floor, like a trail. This went on for almost a year, but Frank figured they were just imagining things, or maybe it was like some kind of phase. But he was so wrong. To be fair, though, you don't expect to find a teenage boy living in the walls of your house, especially not one like Danny. In early December 1986, the Bowens and a family friend returned home only to discover their toilet was used while they were gone. That is when Frank started to take his daughter's ghost stories seriously, because sure, an earthbound spirit might flick your TV on and off or rearrange your kitchen, but they definitely do not poop. Imagine his horror when Frank found the culprit hiding in a closet, a tall, terrifying figure with a hatchet in one hand and a wrench in the other. It was Daniel LaPlante. He looked unhinged. His face was painted, his hair was wild, and he was wearing some kind of costume that police describe as a hairy jacket. So whatever he had going on, it definitely achieved the desired effect. They were petrified. On the other hand, Daniel was extraordinarily calm. He ordered the four of them into a bedroom and held them hostage. Now, Pepperell, Massachusetts, an hour outside of Boston, is a small town. It's known for its covered bridges, not its crime rate. Things like this just didn't happen there. But some reports say that Tina Bowen, Frank's teenage daughter, was the reason that Danny targeted the family. Now, depending on the source, he was either stalking her or he was dating her. Either way, it was her who got them help. When the time was right, she made a mad dash out of the room and ran over to the neighbor's house. From there, she called the authorities, who rolled up to find the rest of the hostages deeply rattled, but otherwise unharmed. Their tormentor had disappeared. Unfortunately, Daniel's next victims wouldn't be so lucky, but we're not quite there yet. 
It seemed like the flashing police lights in the driveway signaled the end to the Bowens ordeal, but it wasn't over. Much like the poltergeist he'd been pretending to be, Daniel had vanished just as quickly as he appeared, and no trace of him could be found. Yet. After their harrowing experience, Frank decided to take his family to stay elsewhere for a while. But on December 10th, just two days after they were attacked, he came back to pick up some things from the house. As he walked up to the door, something caught his eye and filled him with a sick terror. There was a face in the front window, a very familiar face at that. Apparently, Danny wasn't quite finished with the Bowens. When the police arrived for the second time in two days, they assumed that Frank was being paranoid. And who could blame the guy, given the circumstances? So they checked around the house, looking for fresh tracks in the snow, but it was pristine. Nothing out of the ordinary from the outside. The inside, however, another matter entirely. A knife was sticking out of one wall. It was embedded in a family photo. A sinister message was scribbled there. I'm still here, it said. Come find me. On another picture were the words, I'm going to kill you all. At the site, the officer freaking called, he called for backup. When two others arrived, the trio searched the house from top to bottom, guns drawn. But there was no sign of the mysterious intruder. They were missing something, but what? As they were brainstorming, one officer noticed something off about the wall that housed all the bathroom plumbing. Was there enough space to hide back there? After more investigating, they started to develop a theory. Based on the house's layout, they determined it would be possible for someone to squeeze between the interior and exterior walls and jump down into a tiny, like, triangle-shaped crawl space. I mean, yeah, it would have been a little cramped. There was just enough room to sit in a crouched position, but it was doable. The only thing left to do was squeeze back there and have a look for themselves. At first, they saw nothing more than a pile of clothes in this dark little cranny that this prowler had claimed for himself. But after a second flashlight sweep, they realized the mound was oddly human-shaped and moving. Immediately, the officer drew his weapon and ordered Daniel to put his hands up. The boy calmly pushed the pile of camouflage aside and sat up. He cooperated easily enough, but something about his demeanor was just so creepy. He was unfazed, even with a gun pointed directly at his head. And somehow, that was the scariest part of him. Daniel was arrested without much incident and charged with what everything they could think of. Kidnapping, armed assault, breaking and entering. He was held at a juvenile detention center until early in October 1987. At that point, he was transferred to an adult facility. Now, shortly afterward, his mother posted his $10,000 bail, and Daniel was released to await trial, which was scheduled to start on December 11th. Oh, setting him free would prove to be a devastating mistake. Though after his release, Daniel, now he's 17, he moved into his mother and stepfather's house in Townsend, Massachusetts, 15 minutes away from the Bowens in Pepperell. It took him less than a week to commit his next crime. According to court documents, a neighbor's house was burglarized sometime between noon and 2.15 p.m. on October 14th. This house, situated less than a quarter mile from the LaPlante house, belonged to the Pindle family. On top of a large amount of cash, two guns were stolen, a pair of 22 caliber Rugers. 
Now, a few weeks later, Daniel's parents found one of those stolen guns hidden in his laundry basket. When they asked him about it, he brushed it off and said he'd had it since before his arrest. Around this time, his brother noticed that he was carrying around a couple of hundred dollars in cash, which is pretty weird for a kid with no job. But neither of these incidents raised too many red flags in the LaPlante household. Even though he was a teenager awaiting trial for terrorizing an entire family for months before he decided to bust out of a closet and start swinging a hatchet around. All right, look, hindsight is always 2020. No parent wants to think their kid's a monster, but let's agree that mistakes were made here. Mistakes that turned out to be deadly. The Gustafson house was separated from the LaPlantes by a half-mile walk through the woods. Sometime between 11.30 in the morning and 3.30 in the afternoon on November 16, 1987, Daniel paid them a visit, although they didn't know it at the time. He didn't take anything of value, just a few bizarre items, a cordless phone, a couple of cable boxes and the remote that came with them, and some coins from a silver dollar collection. After stashing his spoils, he asked his brother and a family friend for some bullets, He claimed he wanted to melt them down into a single, much larger bullet, like an arts and crafts project for psychos. And a few days later, they gave him the rounds that would later be found in a woman's skull. On December 1st, 1987, he went back to the Gustafson's home with his gun. He wandered through the empty house until he heard the front door open. 33-year-old Priscilla Gustafson had just returned with her five-year-old son, William. Later, Daniel would say his first instinct was to jump out the window, but he pushed that aside. He drew the weapon and he ordered them both into a bedroom. He put William in a closet and he tied the nursery school teacher to the bed where he sexually assaulted her. And then he pressed a pillow to her head and shot her twice, but he still didn't leave. With his mother now dead, Daniel was left with little William. So he dragged the boy into the bathroom and drowned him in the tub. Just then, just as he was about to flee, another member of the Gustafson household walked in the door. Seven-year-old Abigail, home from school. He took her into a second bathroom and drowned her too. A few hours later, Andrew Gustafson came home after a long day of work and he found the house eerily quiet. Now, you know that is definitely not the norm with two kids. So with a growing sense of unease, he walked into the master bedroom, passing the festive holiday decorations that his family had put up over the weekend. Sadly, Christmas in 1987 wasn't going to be very merry for Andrew. He found his wife face down on their bed with the pillow still covering her ruined skull. The children were discovered next, one in the bathroom upstairs, one downstairs, both face down in the tubs, still partially filled with the water Danny drowned them in. Some of Abigail's hair was even torn out when she fought her killer. And what was Daniel doing while Andrew found the bodies of his family? He was on his way to his six-year-old niece's birthday party like nothing ever happened. When the police arrived soon afterward, they found disturbing evidence. Semen on the bedroom sheets, a condom on the floor by the bed, a mostly full bottle of beer from the family's fridge sat nearby. The closet where he kept little William during his attack on Priscilla held even more evidence for the detectives to pour over. There was a saliva-dampened sock, likely used as a makeshift gag, and various garments fashioned into seven ligatures, ties, stockings, knotted-up pantyhose that was cut. You get the idea. Though based on the available evidence, the police determined that the crime occurred between 1.30 and 5.00. 
Abigail's nine-year-old friend who lived next door remembered hearing a quick scream come from the house around 3.35 that afternoon. However, it's impossible to know whether that scream came from Abigail, William, or their mother. Outside, they found footprints in the flower beds, which were later determined to have been made by a Converse sneaker, size 11 or 12. When a detective followed their trail, he realized that the Gustafson's family nameplate, which had been on the front of the house, was now gone. That night, a few police dogs were turned loose on the scene. They tracked a scent deep into the woods, which was definitely an indication of something. But unfortunately, the evidentiary jackpot would have to wait until the following day when they had the benefit of sunlight on their side. And what a difference daylight can make. On December 2nd, a careful search of the woods between the Gustafsons and the LaPlantes turned up some interesting clues. There was the missing nameplate and a pair of sopping wet work gloves, which would later test positive for gunshot residue. They were bundled together and all wrapped up in a blue and white flannel shirt. When the dogs were given the shirt, they made a beeline straight for Danny's house, stopping mere feet from his front door. And when the officers asked to speak with the suspected killer, he jumped the porch railing and took off on foot. A search of the LaPlante home uncovered all the property the Gustafsons had reported stolen a few weeks earlier. Now that alone didn't prove he was the murderer, of course. Still, once they found the casing of a 22 caliber bullet, the same kind used to kill Priscilla, it started to look like they definitely had their man. Now all they had to do was find him. The following day, December 3rd, a full-scale manhunt was underway, complete with helicopters, police dogs, and about 50 officers. As they combed nearby areas for any signs of their suspect, Daniel was back in Pepperell trying to break into several houses. He entered two homes and he helped himself to a 32 caliber along the way. Then he made another attempt at a third house, but he couldn't evade capture for long. He was found huddled in a dumpster that very same day. Once they got him back to the station, they found a 32 caliber bullet in his right sneaker and further investigation revealed the loaded revolver he had hidden in his underwear. Quick side note, seems to be a very risky place to hide a firearm and also where is karma when you need her? So to recap this recap, in almost exactly a year, Daniel LaPlante went from psychological torture to jail to home to triple murder and back to jail again. This time, however, it wasn't going to be quite as easy to get back out. After an evaluation by a court-appointed psychiatrist, it was determined that Daniel showed no remorse about what he'd done. The judge decided to deny his bail and ordered an intensive evaluation, which came to the same conclusion as the first. And in 1988, he was found guilty and sentenced to life times three. No possibility of parole. And that is where he still is today. 